Amen. Christ is mine forevermore. If Christ is mine, I lack no good thing. All is mine in Christ. All is yours in Christ. That's the great promise of the gospel. And it's really the message of the book of Colossians. So that's where we begin this morning in a new study of the book of Colossians. You can take your Bibles and turn along with me to Colossians chapter 1. We begin this new study of the book of Colossians, the gospel hope of Christ in you. The gospel hope of Christ in me. We believe at this church in the regular consecutive exposition of the scriptures. We will preach topically from time to time, as I did last Sunday. And that can be helpful for addressing certain issues and topics. But we believe that preaching through the scriptures verse by verse is the best method for both teaching and learning the whole counsel of God. The regular, consecutive, expository preaching of God's word protects the preacher from preaching on hobby horse issues and from avoiding difficult texts in the Bible that were it up to me, I would probably never touch. The regular consecutive exposition of God's Word helps us all to focus on a book of the Bible, to pay close attention to its historical setting, its author's purpose, and really seek to understand the book in its context, the author's original intent in writing it, and the proper application for us today. So let's begin this morning our study of Colossians together and seek God's truth for us today in this great letter of the Apostle Paul. I've given our study of Colossians the following theme, the gospel hope of Christ in you. Every word of this theme that I've chosen was carefully chosen, and I really think it summarizes well the message of this glorious letter of the apostle. Paul writes to the believers in Colossae to reinforce the truth of the gospel And the certain hope to us that it brings. It is such a certain and present hope because of the truth that because of the gospel, Christ indwells us. When the believer, when you and I, really grasp the truth of just who it is that Jesus Christ is, and that this magnificent Christ indwells each believer... The result is spiritual assurance, joy in the present, and confidence for the future. So with that in mind, I want us to begin reading Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to read the first 14 verses. We're not going to try to cover that today. We're only going to look at the first two verses. 
But we'll get kind of an overview of the book this morning. But to do that, I wanted to read a little bit more than just the first two verses. All right. So Colossians chapter one, we'll just dip our toe in the water a little bit this morning and uh, dive in in weeks to come. All right. Colossians chapter one, verse one. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And all God's people said, this is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is so rich and glorious. The truth that it tells us is so encouraging and challenging and equipping. Lord, we pray that your word through this study would have just that effect. It would encourage us, it would challenge us, it would equip us with the truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth of Christ in us. And as a result of knowing that and knowing who this Christ is who indwells us, we would have that certain hope for today and for all of our tomorrows. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are and for the gospel you secured through your own death, burial, and resurrection. We thank you that you are the ascended Christ at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all things, Lord, show us yourself in this study, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to focus our attention this morning just on the first two verses, which will help us to better understand the context of this letter. It'll help us better understand the author, 
the recipients, and the general historical and theological context of what was going on at the time that Paul wrote this letter. The author is the Apostle Paul. He was likely dictating this letter to an amanuensis, a secretary, who was writing down the things that he said, as Paul often did in his letters. Paul was, of course, a Jew. His Hebrew name was Saul, and his Greek name was Paul, a man with two names. And Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin, born around the same time as the birth of Christ. Having been born in Tarsus, a city in the Roman province of Cilicia in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, Paul enjoyed the privileges of Roman citizenship. Paul was not just any Jew, however. He spent his youthful days in Jerusalem studying under one of the most prestigious and famous rabbis of the time, Gamaliel. We know this from Acts 22.3. He was in training to be a Pharisee, indeed a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was wanting to be a member of this strictest of sects of Judaism. Paul was quickly rising through the ranks to a position of prominence among his fellow Pharisees. And he recounts his qualifications as a Pharisee in his letter to the Philippians, written around the same time as this letter. Philippians chapter 3, verse 5 says that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. As men count righteousness, Paul was righteous. Paul was a teetotaler. He fulfilled the law of man as men account such things. Paul was a real rising star among the Pharisees. We first read of him in Acts chapter 7 in the account of the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr. Acts chapter 7 verse 58 says, when they had driven Stephen out of the city, they began stoning him and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Having said this, he fell asleep. He died. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. So as an adult, Paul mercilessly persecuted the church. He mercilessly persecuted genuine believers. But that was all soon to change. For on his way to Damascus in Syria to persecute Christians there, Paul was confronted on that road to Damascus by Christ himself. The resurrected Christ 
appeared to Paul. And he said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice that Jesus there doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my followers? He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Christians? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? For Christ so identifies with the believer that to persecute a believer is to persecute Christ himself. As a result of that divine confrontation, On the road to Damascus, Paul was gloriously converted and would go on to preach the gospel for the rest of his life, planting churches all over the known world, preaching the gospel to anyone who would hear it, penning 13 letters that are included in the New Testament and making up fully one-third of the New Testament scriptures. Well, Paul introduces himself in this letter as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul was an apostle. That means he was chosen by Jesus Christ himself to be an apostle. It means that he was an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ and that he was trained by Jesus Christ. An apostle, of course, meant that he had apostolic authority to speak on behalf of Jesus Christ in a unique way. As Paul writes, he writes with the authority of an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul also mentions here that he is with Timothy, our brother. Timothy. Timothy very likely came to Christ under Paul's ministry during his first missionary journey. And became one of Paul's closest companions and most trusted assistants. Paul writes this letter while under house arrest in Rome. He had a number of people there with him, including Luke, the beloved physician. He was arrested around the year 60 AD for his faith in Christ and for preaching the gospel, which often caused a stir in communities. It was during his house arrest that Paul wrote the New Testament books of Ephesians, Philemon, Colossians, and Philippians, a productive imprisonment. Paul refers to his imprisonment several times in this letter. Look with me at Colossians chapter 4. Oh, I love to hear those pages turn. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 3. Paul says, pray at the same time for us as well that God will open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. And then skip down to verse 10 of Colossians 4. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, okay, this is his bunkmate, sends you his greetings and also Barnabas' cousin Mark John Mark, about whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. So Paul is writing this from house arrest in Rome. Paul had the letter, this letter to the Colossians, delivered by a man named Tychicus. Everyone say Tychicus. It's kind of fun to say. 
Tychicus. He's mentioned in Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. You can read about him there. And there Paul explains that Tychicus would also share with the Colossians more details about Paul's condition and circumstances. He's going to fill in all the gaps for you. He's seen the situation here, the circumstances with his own eyes. He'll be able to share uh, whatever I don't share with you in this letter and uh, fill you in about my circumstances. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to the saints. You'll notice verse 2 of chapter 1. He writes to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. We know that Colossae was not the only place Paul intended for this letter to find itself. It would be a circular letter as apostolic letters often were. They would be traded and exchanged as you can imagine without the benefit of printing presses or copy machines. Letters like this were very expensive. They were hard to duplicate. And so they would often exchange them and trade them. Look at Colossians 4.16. Again, back to Colossians 4. Writing to the Colossians, he says, When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, your neighbors. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. You say, oh, well, let's turn to first Laodiceans. <laughs> well, we don't have that, right? So not everything that Paul wrote or any of the apostles wrote, not everything was included in the scriptures. They, they created grocery lists. They had all kinds of correspondence, no doubt, much of which is lost to us, most of which is lost to us. But those things which are necessary for our learning, for our understanding, and for our knowledge of Christ have been retained and received by us in the scriptures. And that includes the letter to the Colossians. Let's talk about the ancient city of Colossae. It was located in the southwestern part of modern day Turkey. Which in biblical times was known as Asia or Asia Minor. It was a City situated in a valley near the Lycus River, the Lycus River Valley. At the time that Paul writes this letter, the city was in significant decline as one of the major roads that had been used for trade had been moved slightly by the Romans, leaving the city of Colossae behind. So if you're a fan of the movie Cars, kids, adults, think about the town of Radiator Springs after they moved the highway. The city of Colossae was known for its wool production. The city's name means purple wool. The city was completely destroyed. First by an earthquake and then later in the 12th century, and it has never been excavated by archaeologists. But plans are underway to begin to excavate that ancient site this year. I just read that yesterday. 
Well, compared to all the other churches that Paul addressed in his letters, the church at Colossae was the least important church located in what was probably the least important city. And yet, as we will see, this little letter written to the least important church in the least important city has some of the most glorious and detailed descriptions of Christ in all the Bible. As far as we know, Paul never visited Colossae. He never preached there. He never evangelized there directly. He had spent three years in the nearby city of Ephesus, a long ministry for the Apostle Paul, who was almost always on the move. And it was during his ministry in Ephesus that some of the citizens of Colossae had heard the gospel and believed. They had been in Ephesus, they'd heard Paul preach themselves, and they had taken the message of the gospel, having believed, back to their home city of Colossae and shared the gospel. So these believers in Colossae were not Paul's direct spiritual children, but rather his spiritual grandchildren. Now, the situation, the church situation, the theological situation in Colossae was serious. And Paul was very concerned for this church. His brother in Christ, Epaphras, had traveled some 1,100 miles from Colossae to Rome to visit the Apostle Paul and tell him about what was going on back in Asia Minor, back in Colossae. Clearly, Epaphras wanted Paul's counsel, but rather than merely sharing with Epaphras things that he should take back with him verbally, Paul took up pen and began to write a letter. Now, just what was going on back in Colossae that caused Paul to write this letter. Well, according to Epaphras, as he informed the Apostle Paul, false teachings were beginning to take hold and have a negative influence upon the Colossian believers there. Paul loved fellow believers. And he wanted to see them established in the truth. Look with me at Colossians chapter 2. And verse 16. This is just a section that addresses some of the things that were going on. Some of the false teachings that were translating themselves into false actions and activities. Colossians 2.16. Therefore, Paul says, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. 
and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and the teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. They were being taught a false Christology. They were being led into a false belief about sanctification, how the Christian grows. They were being led into a false understanding about ecclesiology, what the church is, and how we relate to one another. So what exactly was this false teaching that was threatening the spiritual well-being of these Colossian believers? It's sometimes referred to as the Colossian heresy. Well, it was a heresy, but that almost sounds like it was a systematic and well-defined, cohesive system of teaching. And as best as we can tell, it probably wasn't that. It was a mishmash of false ideas and ideas carried over from Judaism and from the surrounding culture. Even bringing in some old pagan ideas. So it was a kind of syncretistic, taped together system of belief that was nonetheless posing a real threat to the life and health of the church in Colossae. Whatever the exact nature of the false teaching going on here, Paul writes that it related directly to one's understanding of the true identity and total sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And therefore, the heart of the gospel itself was at stake. False teachers were distorting and downplaying the sufficiency of the person and work of Christ. They were attacking the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross to save us and to sanctify us. And in place of centering their teaching on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, these false teachers were emphasizing the necessity of attaining a spiritual knowledge not centered upon Jesus Christ. The false teachers were demanding the observation of certain Jewish rituals like abstaining from certain foods or observing certain days fastidiously. They also encouraged the worship of angels who may believe to have power over nature and power over each individual's life. There was an emphasis on visions 
supernatural visions. There was an emphasis on ascetic lifestyles and self-denial. It was a teaching that espoused the idea that only those with knowledge of the fullness of truth as taught by the false teachers could understand and experience true spiritual maturity and enlightenment. And so it fostered an elitist spirituality among the church of the haves and the have-nots, of the indoctrinated and the ignorant, of the enlightened and those still in darkness. In short, Paul says that their teaching was not according to Christ, chapter 2 and verse 8. Whatever this teaching was, whatever the Colossian heresy was, it was not according to Christ. It didn't line up. He further says that this false teaching was a denial that Christ is all and in all. Chapter 3 and verse 11. Paul wrote the book of Colossians to counter these false teachings and to strengthen the Colossian believers in their faith in Christ. He is writing to them to remind them of the gospel hope of Christ in you. Believer, here this morning, Christ is in you. And because Christ is in you, you have everything you need. You lack nothing. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Look with me at Colossians chapter 2. Where we really see Paul's heart here. And why he's writing. Colossians 2. One through three, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. I'm troubled. I'm struggling on your behalf. And for those who are at Laodicea, they're facing some of the same challenges. And for all those who've not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged. He wants to encourage them. Having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Don't let anyone tell you that the real secret to life, the real secret to fulfillment, the real secret to knowing is somehow outside of Christ. It's not. It's a fool's errand. And it only offers fool's gold. Paul says, I'm writing to encourage you that you might realize that you have all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want to grow in wisdom? You want to grow in knowledge? You want to grow in fulfillment? Seek it in Jesus Christ and him alone. 
They needed to be reminded of their spiritual riches and resources in Jesus Christ. These believers in Colossae needed to be reminded that there are no second-class Christians, but that every Christian is blessed with the indwelling of the fullness of Christ. And just what does it mean that Christ is in us? Big deal, huh? Is it a big deal that Christ is in us? How, is, how does the fact that Christ is in us produce gospel hope? Well, I'm glad you asked. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. Let's look at the identity of this Christ who is in us who comes to indwell us through the gospel, which is the good news that God in his love sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die for sinners as a sinless sacrifice on their behalf. How does this truth produce in us gospel hope that Christ is in us? Colossians 1.13, it produces gospel hope by us Focusing in on who this Christ is who indwells us right now. This isn't future for the believer. This isn't something we hope for. Someday down the road, this is what is true for us right now. This is the Christ who indwells us. All right? Colossians 1.13. Here we go. Through verse 23. Ten verses packed with Christological significance. Here we go. For he rescued us, God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Everyone say amen. Amen. All right? So just is it, who is this Son of God who redeemed us and, and brought to us the forgiveness of sins? Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church, and he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Why is it a big deal that Christ is in us? Because he is everything. He is the one who has come to have preeminence over all things. 
He is the one who conquered death. He is the one who has all power. He is the one who rules over every created thing and in whom every created thing holds together. The teachers in Colossae, some of them, were trying to point the believers away from Jesus Christ into the latest craze, the latest fad, the latest philosophy, the latest idea. And they said, hey, don't reject Jesus, but just add this to Jesus. It'll make Jesus even better. Paul says, no, 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 no. You cannot improve upon perfection. The constant danger facing us all is that we can find greater fulfillment, greater joy, greater freedom by adding to the simplicity of the gospel. That we can attain greater spiritual ground by adding something to Jesus Christ. The reality is that when we add anything to Jesus Christ, we are in so doing weakening our belief in and reliance upon Jesus. We are diminishing in our own lives his centrality and sufficiency for us. So Paul is writing here the book of Colossians. As he says in chapter 1 and verse 27, he's writing to declare the life-changing truth of Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's nothing better than the truth of Christ in you. This is your identity. This is who we are as Christians. We house Within us, Christ himself. Christ is sufficient. And because Christ is sufficient and he is in us, we are sufficient in Christ. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray together. Lord, as we embark upon this journey through the letter to the Colossians, we pray that we would have a greater vision of and appreciation for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, reveal yourself to us in the pages of your word. We're not looking for visions. We're not looking to angels. We're not looking to man-made religion or attempts at self-improvement through asceticism and self-denial. We are looking to you, Jesus, and you alone. For we know that you are sufficient and perfect. And we know that in you, we are sufficient and perfect.
before the Father. Thank you, Jesus. Shape our thinking. Shape our worldview. Shape our understanding of the church and of one another through this glorious letter that presents our glorious Christ in all the fullness of his perfection. Thank you, Jesus. Make it so, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.